Welcome to the Principles of Performance podcast, where we discuss how to optimize your health, fitness, and performance. Drawing on decades of experience of working as coaches, consultants, and trainers to top performers, athletes, and teens from professional sports to top universities to the U.S. military, Eric Degatti and Mike Perry discuss topics and strategies of how to perform at your highest level and be your very best. Join us and our friends and colleagues who are leaders in the fitness and performance industry as we investigate and challenge the most popular training, nutrition, lifestyle, and recovery protocols. Away we go. Here we are with the Principles of Performance podcast. We are at episode number 31. I'm your host, Eric Degatti, along with my buddy and co-host, Mike Perry. Mike, welcome to the show today. It's good to see you, buddy. It's a, it's a beautiful day here in Boston. We're going to hit about 42 degrees. So, uh, you know, it's it's uh, everyone's getting the uh, the shorts out and getting ready for summer. Sun's out, guns out, buddy. All right. So, so speaking of which, uh, we're going to talk a lot about resistance training uh, and get a little bit in hypertrophy and that stuff. We're going to go from a little different angle today. We're going to talk about research and we're going to talk about what we know versus what's kind of bro science out there and, and where the two may match up and where the two are comp- completely opposite. And if we're going to talk research, we're lucky to have somebody from one of the, one of the best research labs in the country for this. Uh, and that's Max Coleman. And Max Coleman's a second year master's student currently working under the legendary Dr. Brad Schoenfeld at the Human Performance and Fitness Lab at Lehman College in the Boogie Down Bronx in New York. Uh, if you're not familiar with Dr. Schoenfeld, his lab's considered one of the premier research centers in exercise science and published over 250 peer-reviewed scientific papers on various exercise and sports nutrition related topics. And Max's research uh, interest uh, pertains specifically specifically to the manipulation of resistance training variables and their effect on my, uh, muscle hypertrophy. So Max, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on. And, and let's talk about some of the things that we know, some of the things that we don't. Uh, Mike, I'll let you kick things off. All right. So, uh, you know, Dr. Schoenfeld's work is, is considered some of the most respected research and content in the fitness industry. How did you how did you become part of his lab? Yeah, so I, I talked a little bit about this on on the last podcast I went on, Logan Harrelly's podcast, which is great if you guys haven't seen it. But I've been into lifting since I was about 12 years old. So I'm 24 now. And just like most Gen Z kids, the, the first place that I went to learn more about the thing I was interested in was YouTube. So uh, very quickly uh, on YouTube, you're exposed to two different like facets of fitness. You're exposed to the six pack shortcuts. I don't know if you guys remember him very much from, from back in like 2010. Uh, and you're exposed to kind of the evidence-based side. And, and I got to give a big shout out to Omar Esoff because he was the first person to ever mention Brad Schoenfeld in, in, in my world. And that kind of just got the ball rolling. And then it was kind of just this ancillary interest I had growing up. I was just into lifting and, and kind of finding the most optimal way to, to elicit some sort of hypertrophic response. But it was just a hobby. And I was really, I was uh, kind of lost, not lost. I hate to say that word to make it sound so like existential, but I was, I was not interested in making a career out of it. And I was in nursing for a little while and kind of realized that wasn't for me. So my dad was like, well, why don't you try exercise science out? You seem to really like that stuff. So switched majors and then 
within the first 10 minutes of my 8 a.m. exercise physiology class, I was like, yeah, this is this is what I'm going to be doing for the rest of my life. And then fortunately, I was I was down at Auburn University. So I'm from Alabama, even though I am currently in the boogie down Bronx. But I was fortunate enough to work with Dr. Mike Roberts and he, he him and Dr. Schoenfeld are actually good friends. And he got me in contact with him and, and, and Doc and I kind of hit it off from there. And and then lo and behold. So, yeah, it's about a 12 year journey now. And, and I'm very happy to be where I am right now. Awesome. It's got to be a very cool place. And so um, one of the questions that comes in my head when we talk about research, one of the first, well, actually the first guest we had on was uh, ironically my brother. And and we had him on to specifically talk about research. Now he's a DPT as well as a PhD in, in physical therapy, but he's done a lot of research. We want to kind of dig in a little bit more. And one of the things that always stuck out from, from our conversation was Research basically starts with a question, right? You have to pose a question and then your, your, your deal is to answer uh, what you think is going to happen and whether that's right or wrong. And so describe a little bit about some of the core beliefs or, or maybe it's a mission statement or something that, that you would have in, in your lab and, and, and is more of the goal to try to prove what we think we know or disprove it or, or a little bit of both. Uh, yeah. So I, I would even make, not to you know, disagree with your brother who I've never met, obviously, but I would say research, even before you have a question, you have to make an observation, right? So you, the observation is the absolute first thing. And for me, that observation was, look at all these jacked people. And then the question was, how are they getting so jacked, essentially? Um, but that was just a little side tangent. Uh, as far as the the core mission statement of Dr. Schoenfeld's lab, so I'd like to iterate Dr. Schoenfeld's lab, not my lab, unfortunately. I'm just, I'm just a, a, a lucky master student who happens to be working in it. But I wish I could give you guys some cool, grandiose answer for what our mission statement is, but but truth be told, the, the mission statement of Dr. Schoenfeld's lab, and I'm kind of speaking for him here, is just trying our best to conduct as much, to conduct and to disseminate as much quality research as we can pertaining to getting jacked as possible. I mean, that's, that's really what it boils down to, as, as non-fancy as it sounds. And as far as disproving or proving previously held beliefs. I think that's kind of a researcher dependent question. So for instance, I think it goes both ways, right? So right now my thesis I'm conducting is about uh, detraining and deload periods. So my opinion, my hypothesis is that detraining and deloading is probably really good for long-term strength and muscular adaptations, right? So in this particular instance, yes, I'm trying to prove something that is is a, a belief that I already have. However, uh, more so than that, it is simply the desire to find new information because that's what research is at the end of the day is is creating new information that that has not been done before. So I think that if you tailor your research, you know, philosophy towards disproving or especially proving previous held beliefs that's when you can allow for a lot of uh, biases to be to be you know in, infiltrate their way into your research so uh, unfortunately i can't give you a good straight answer but i would say it goes both ways as far as trying to prove what we know and disprove what we don't know so what are some of the things that you've learned about strength and about hypertrophy that goes against some of the sort of common and long-held beliefs. So, uh, full disclosure to the audience, I hope this isn't—I hope this is allowed. But I did—you guys did give me these questions beforehand, fortunately. And this one stumped me a lot. And the reason being is because, like I said, I've been in 
this lifting circle kind of thing since I was about 12 years old. And I got really into the evidence-based, science-based side of it when I was about, I'd say 18. And then another shout out to Omar Isoff because he had Dr. Mike Isratel on his channel. And that was my first real exposure to like the mixing of the evidence and the practical application of, of what we study, right? And that exposure at kind of a young age has led to a almost cut offness uh, from the real world in a way, because the majority of the time I spend online or in person, really, I'm, I'm hanging out with like-minded individuals who are also really into the science of lifting. So I don't get to see a lot of the common held bro beliefs because I don't even train in a normal gym anymore. I train in our lab at Lehman. So I don't get to hear a lot of those conversations about, you know, got to got to go to failure, bro, or whatever, whatever it may be, you know, got to get your uh, can't eat your nightshades like Tom Brady. I don't think he doesn't eat tomatoes or something like that. But I'm not exposed to a lot of those ideas. Right? Easy with the Tom Brady stuff. We have a yeah, Boston okay. guy. In sorry, there. sorry, sorry. Mike, uh, Mike doesn't get sunburned because he drinks water, like just like TB12 told him. <laughs> It's, exactly. it's accurate. Yeah. So I, uh, I, um, I will say the one thing that I've tried really hard to come to terms with and, and, and things that I've learned both anecdotally and through the research over the last couple of years is kind of pushing away from the mentality of go hard or go home and more is better. I would think that those are probably the most prevailing ideas that persist even amongst evidence-based individuals of you got to train the muscle to failure, bro, or you got to be smashing it seven days a week, bro, like things like that. So an idea that, and, and even like us, like we're just, we're gym bros at the end of the day, maybe we, we study it, but we're still just gym bros. And we have those little things in the back of our heads saying, you're not pushing hard enough or you're not doing enough. And being able to really turn that noise down and think, no, there is, there's, there's a, a limit to how much I can recover from. And there's, there's an, probably an optimal amount that's less than what I want to do, if that makes sense. So I long winded, but basically pushing away from the more is better and go hard, go home mentality is probably what I've tried embracing the most over the last couple of years. Well, I, I will tell you that I think you're profiling a little bit with the gym bro thing, even though I can recite every single line of pumping iron backwards and forward. <laughs> uh, and so that being said, um, you know, so much, if you look in the history of weight training from, you know, that era to where it's, it's gained its popularity today, a lot of biases are, are in bodybuilding. Um, and so now we have a very different demographic that we're dealing with that that's walking into Mike's facility that are, that are adults that are over 40, that are women, that are people that weren't part of that culture initially. And that weren't there in gyms when I first started going, you know, 30 years ago. And so the, when you talk about, we, we want to build muscle and we want to gain strength, there's huge benefits to that, that are aside from the aesthetics and, 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 and bodybuilding and, and that sort of thing. So, um, is it safe to say that that new population needs almost a different prescription than the typical bro splits body part type of training? So I would say that regardless of the population, right, whether you're 46, right, or 16 and just getting into lifting or, or 46 and just getting into lifting, right? The prescription remains largely the same of what we're going to do depending on the goal of the individual. So if a 46 year old comes to me and they say, I want to get as jacked as possible, their training program is likely going to look 
fairly similar to that of a 16 year old who comes to me and says, I just want to get as jacked as possible. Now, the, the, the practicality of that question is that most 46 year old clients aren't coming to me saying, I want to get as jacked as possible, right? They're saying, I would like my daily activities of living to be a little bit easier. You know, I'd like to, I'd like to, you know, kind of prolong this, this game we call life. And I would just like to be, you know, live a, a healthier lifestyle. And that, when it comes to that, the same thing goes for the 16 year old. Like if they said that the, the training would look a lot different. I would not be smashing them with like body spark splits six days a week, two a days or anything like that. It would be much less intense um, as far as true volume and, and then the actual grit of the program. Um, but as far as treating these clients very differently, I would say I, I try to avoid that because I, at the end of the day, we're all human. And though our physiology does change as we get older, we still largely respond to hyper or resistance training similarly. So for a long time, it was believed that individuals over 40 or 50 couldn't, there were no, there was no reason for them to go to the gym. Like there was, there was nothing that could be done. Um, I, I taught about this in a class, uh, the class that I taught last semester, which is like an introductory course to exercise science. We were trying to, we had a class where we just devoted it to disproving myths. And a lot of uh, a very long held prevailing myth was that lifting over the age of 50 was pointless. And fortunately, Dr. Schoenfeld um, recently wrote, not super recently, but within the last five years, wrote a meta-analysis assessing the effects of hypertrophy training or resistance training on in very old individuals, geriatric individuals over 70 years old. And they saw massive gains in strength and hypertrophy in those individuals. So uh, once again, Longwood, and sorry, I keep going off on tangents here, but uh, do I think that I should treat a 46 year old soccer mom who just wants to get, you know, in shape for summer, the same as a 16 year old who's trying to get jacked as possible. Absolutely not. But I am going to treat a 46 year old soccer mom who wants to get as jacked as possible. The same as a 16 year old kid who wants to get as jacked as possible. Yeah. And don't be shy about going on tangents. That's what this whole show is. Um, and so, uh, and so, uh, there's, if we have time, I want to get into where anybody could really benefit from and, and really needs muscle, a certain amount of muscle. And even we can get into when we talk about myths is that, you know, when that person comes and says, well, Oh no, I don't want to get too big. You know, first thing I explain to him and say, look, I've spent the last 25 years trying to get too big. I wish it happened by accident. Right. Um, but let's, let's talk about actually how that does happen. Like in the simplest terms, um, you know, talk to me like a kindergartner, what are some of those key mechanisms that create muscle growth and hypertrophy? And what then are some of the elements that need to be part of that training program to make those mechanisms trigger? Yeah. So first I got to acknowledge, I'm sorry, I have to acknowledge that I'm scared of getting too bulky. I've been lifting pretty hard for 12 years and I still have people ask me if I lift weights. So I, I would give anything to accidentally stumble into too much muscle mass. Uh, so I definitely try and discourage anyone who's, who's fearful of that. Um, as far as the basic fundamentals necessary to design a training program for muscle growth, it's just not that complicated. Um, and so inherently it's like talking to a kindergartner when you're describing this stuff. Um, well, okay, not really, but uh, without trying to complicate things, I, I'm stealing this truthfully directly from Dr. Isratel's scientific principles of hypertrophy training, right? In which the first three chapters are specificity, overload, 
and fatigue management. And they basically say after that, those three chapters, they're like, if you have these three things, you have a really solid, good training program. And you, and there's like seven chapters in the book. There's four more chapters of things that on top of it will make it a better program. But those three are fundamentally what you need. And that is specificity, right? Which is, I, I know that kind of in our ivory tower of, of fitness, you guys, like said, you've been in this for a while. We, we forget that there are a lot of people who think that running is, is really good for muscle growth in their legs, right? Um, and and it, it is up until a point, but it's only going to keep you as jacked as you need to be to continue running, which, let's face it, is not that jacked. Um, so I think that the biggest thing, obviously, is specificity. You need that guidance system pointing you in the direction of the goal that you want, right? And then the next big thing is overload, right? Things need to get harder and harder. And, and then finally, like I said, fatigue management. And I'm going to break these down to make them more, more kindergarten, like you said. And then you need fatigue management, which is just as we train, we accrue these wonderful things like more muscle mass, more strength. But we also accrue these other things like increased you know, stress hormone levels, uh, difficult like if, if you train too hard obviously without this fatigue management component you can lead to overtraining which affects your sleep affects your ability to continue inducing these muscular adaptations right now even more simple than that what do you need to design a very simple straightforward training program you need to expose the muscle groups that you want to grow to some degree of resistance training in the five to 30 rep range right and you should hopefully be doing that about twice a week per muscle, which means you can be training as little as twice a week full body, right? And more importantly, or equally as important is next week has to be a little bit harder than this week, whether it be shorter rest periods, increased load, increased reps, increased sets, whatever it may be. And the week after has to be harder and the week after has to be harder. And then eventually it's going to be so hard that you're going to, need to take a little bit of time away from it meaning like a very short period of time, like a week for a deload in this instance, and then keep building. And then you start over essentially, not from step one, but from step five, you start over from step right, right before you took your little break, you keep going and keep pushing it. Uh, it's a, I mean, I know that's not the simplest terms in the world, but that's about as simple as I can put it. You got to be training in the five to 30 rep range about twice a week per muscle and things have to get harder over time. Interesting. So it seems like, uh, you know, a big part of this um, is just the effort component, right? Um, because obviously, you know, you can design these really, really in-depth programs, but if the effort is not there and you're not putting in that effort week to week, um, maybe, maybe the program doesn't matter too much. And I, you know, think what we always talk about one of our courses is, is, you know, I'd rather have, I'd rather see someone do a simple program well than a complicated program that they can't finish or that is, is just not optimal for people. But I think effort is always that missing link, especially when it comes to hypertrophy. Oh, I mean, so Dr. Schoen, okay, well, first of all, everyone who's anyone agrees with you, I think that the proximity to failure, relative effort, intensity, uh, relative intensity are probably the single most important acute variable when it comes to any type of progress in the gym, right? Uh, you can be so like a lot of people are always asking what's more important volume or intensity I, I don't know if you guys have heard that there was a big question in like 2018 that just it was prevailing and it's it's died down a little bit now but I, you can do 30 sets a week per muscle group with 10 rir which is 10 reps away from failure and see almost no adaptations whatsoever at all so that's actually something dr schoenfeld and i have talked about a lot uh, which is that if your goal 
is to grow as much muscle in a single session as possible, obviously is, is a complete hyperbole, but you should be training to failure. You should be absolutely smashing the muscle, whatever it may be. Now, obviously longitudinally speaking, chronically speaking, that's not what we suggest, but I couldn't agree more that effort is probably the single most important variable when it comes to any of this stuff. So yeah, definitely in, in agreement there. So there's uh, countless training methods that we can leverage to increase intensity and or volume. And you recently published a, a meta-analysis on drop sets. Tell us how that study was designed and um, what did you find that could have a practical application in our workouts? Oh, good question. Okay, so that study, so that that uh, that drop set meta-analysis that we ran was actually part of a course here at Lehman College. So one of, in Dr. Schoenfeld's master's program, you can take an elective course in which the whole class just conducts a meta-analysis. Uh, coolest class I've ever taken in my entire life, I gotta say. And it ends up getting you published in mass, which is, I mean, there, there's nothing cooler than that. But anyway, uh, so the, the way that we designed the, the study is that everyone in the class came up with ideas for what we thought would be a cool meta-analysis. And then obviously none of them were as good as Brad's. So we used Brad's for, for the drop sets. Um, and then we just, you know, did the typical meta-analysis thing. We went and looked through a bunch of different databases. I think we used Sports Discus, uh, PubMed, Google Scholar, and, and I believe another one, um, and tried to find as many studies as we could that fit our inclusion criteria, right? Which is just studies that are directly comparing traditional training methods to drop set training methods, right? And we found about five uh, that were, we found about seven that were good, but only five of them directly met our inclusion criteria. So we met five studies and we found that there was no difference in the amount of hypertrophy or strength increases that we saw very small effect sizes, at least, that we saw between conditions, right? Which is to say, simply, that we found no difference between drop sets and traditional normal strength or resistance training, right? But we did find that a couple of the studies noted much shorter training periods in the drop set groups, which is to suggest that those training with drop sets, we're seeing the exact same amount of increases in both strength and hypertrophy, but in a much shorter period of time. It suggests that drop set training may be a really efficient way of training for individuals. Now, there's a bunch of caveats to that, that uh, Mike Zordos did a wonderful job analyzing it in his mass art review that I'm going to touch on here. Uh, but my biggest practical takeaway for just the average listener, not the not the people like me who weirdly devoted their entire life to this stuff, this weird hobby, is that if you are someone who's interested in getting bigger and stronger and you are very pressed for time in the gym, drop sets might be a wonderful option for you. Now, that being said, if you are a freak like the three of us who took this hobby to to the to the nines, essentially, I don't think that doing drop sets chronically for a long period of time are very wise, especially for strength training adaptations. So even though we didn't find a huge difference between, statistically speaking, a huge difference between the strength outcomes across all five studies, they leaned far towards traditional training being better for strength. So the reason I say that is because one of the studies that we uh, analyzed, I believe it was Fink et al. It was done by Fink et al. And it was, it looked at 12 RM tricep strength, which we didn't, we didn't include in our study because it didn't technically meet our inclusion criteria, which is like strength has to be in like the one to three to five rep range, essentially. 
Um, and they showed significantly higher increases in strength in the tricep group that did traditional sets opposed to drop sets, right? And then we had another study as well that showed significantly more strength increases than the in, in the traditional group than the drop set group because they were training with much higher loads than, the, than the, those in the drop set group. But the other studies showed very similar increases. And I think that's largely due to the rep ranges that were being performed by those individuals, right? So they they were comparing like 12 to 15 reps with like, you know, 20 to 30 reps in the drop set group, for instance. And so you're obviously not going to see huge differences there. But I think that once you start training above that 85%, you're going to see significant. I mean, as we know, you need to train heavy to get strong, obviously. And, and, and they just simply weren't comparing heavy training to drop set training. They were comparing hypertrophy style training. So like 10 to 15 rep range with drop set training. So once again, long-winded, but I, I think that drop sets are a great option for casual lifters who are just looking to get a little bit jacked and a little bit strong, just, you know, normal people. And then if you're, if you're more obsessed, it's probably not something to do chronically for a long period of time, but I do think it is a wonderful thing to throw in at the end of a, at the end of workout, at the end of the last set of an exercise to really quickly and effectively increase the amount of volume that you're doing. And then not to mention that you get a sick gnarly pump from doing, from doing drop sets too. So, and, and like you said at the beginning, Mike, there, there are a lot of different ways of doing it. Drop, there is nothing magical about drop sets whatsoever. They are simply a way of, you know, they're a pump exercise. They're a way of accruing metabolites in the muscle that you're training. So you can do things like pre-exhaust supersets to the same effect. Most likely you can do things like BFR training. So blood flow restriction training, for those of you who don't know, probably to the same effect. Um, and, and myo reps and, and, and rest pause sets and stuff like that too. So biggest takeaway again, there are a bunch of efficient ways of increasing your volume. So just find the ones that you like. I personally love drop sets. I think they're really fun. I think running the rack with a bunch of bicep curls going from the the forties to the tens is like one of the most fun thing and fun things on the planet. So yeah, find what works for you, I guess is my biggest takeaway there. Love it. So uh, I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent here. Um, and, and this is simply because of the uh, the individuals that I work with. So um, the, I work with kind of two different populations. Most people, part of them are post rehab coming out of physical therapy. And I work with a lot of uh, professional fighters, mixed martial artists, combat athletes. Um, and uh, one of the questions that I had is... Um, so when we're doing this high volume uh, kind of hypertrophy training where you're really getting that pump... Um, there's also a muscular endurance component. Um, and, and that's something that, uh, that I don't think a lot of people are, are understanding about the, when you're training for hypertrophy is you're getting your body also acclimated to, uh, to basically withstand more volume and sort of, it has to manage metabolic waste. So, um, have you, have you guys seen any research or talked about how maybe some of the hypertrophy work that you've been doing or some of the research that you've been doing is going to affect uh, uh, localized muscular endurance and how that could be potentially benef beneficial for other athletes? So uh, I got to say, like right off the bat, the second we start talking about something other than just getting jacked, truthfully, I mean, this is the nature <laughs> of the world we live in now. It's, it's just about as hyper-specialized as it can be. But the second we start talking about like athletics and, and other sports, I wanted to be clear to your audience, I'm outside of my realm of expertise here, okay? But 
do I think that hypertrophy training is beneficial for almost every population? Essentially, yes, I do. And I know that I'm obviously biased given everything that I've already said, but I do think that strength is, I think Mark Bell, I don't know if he's the first person that said strength is never a weakness, essentially. And I could say the same about, you know, obviously, I mean, you're a combat, I'm assuming you are involved in combat sports as well. If you're interested, there is a point where you can get too jacked and it becomes a problem. So obviously it's not a linear relationship. But I do think that hypertrophy training is probably very beneficial to a lot of athletes for the reasons you were just saying. Yes, there is a muscular endurance component. I can't speak directly to that like super in-depth, but I can say, for instance, that it's something that we test for. So in my thesis, we are currently testing to see uh, different muscular endurance uh, outcomes between groups, between deloading and not deloading, right? And then in the study that I was a part of last year, my good friend, Daniel Plotkin, shout out, he's now at Auburn uh, doing his PhD, but his thesis was on progressive overload without progressing load. So uh, increasing the amount of reps you were doing week to week or increasing the amount of weight you were doing week to week within a fine rep range, right? And they found that there was a, I, I believe if I'm remembering correctly, if not, I'm so sorry, Daniel, and to the rest of the community, but I do believe that they did see a, a, a higher increase in the muscular endurance test in the individuals that were increasing reps to reps each week. Now, I don't think it was super, uh, it wasn't incredibly significant. It wasn't like a, a drastic difference or anything like that, but absolutely. I mean, you train in the, if you're you know smart, you're probably training in the five to 30 at the most rep range. And there's just, I mean, no question. If you're doing, no one's doing squats, but if you're doing leg presses for 30 reps, yeah, your quads are getting a pretty impressive, a pretty impressive and incredible and robust endurance exposure there that I think will lead to some pretty incredible adaptations over time. Very cool. Hey, everybody, a quick break in the action here. Hope you're enjoying the show and we appreciate you listening. We're working hard to bring you the highest quality content and best guest every single week. So if you could do us a big favor and go and like and subscribe to the show on whatever platform you get your podcasts on, it would be greatly appreciated. Be sure to listen at the end of the show also to find out where you can find out more information about our courses, as well as a special discount code for all our listeners. Thanks again, and let's get back to the show. So uh, as you're talking, uh, I got a bunch of questions that are that are kind of going through my head, and and one of them was actually, and, and I'm wondering if it's the same research that that I uh, can't across was where they took a group and they basically said, okay, let's say you could lift for for easy numbers, you could lift 100 pounds for 10 reps. Now, as for your progressive overload, you can either add weight to the bar and go from 100 to 105 and 110, or you just keep doing more reps instead of doing eight. Now you're going to do nine, then you do 10. And they both had similar results, except for kind of what you'd expect. Like you said, they had more muscular endurance in the higher rep group or more strength in the, in the higher uh, uh, intensity group. But their, their results in terms, of, in terms of hypertrophy was relatively the same, I believe. And I don't know if that's the same study that we're talking about. Uh, it is the same study we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I actually would like to note that I don't think that the, I could be wrong once again, because I haven't looked at the manuscript in a minute, but. I do not think that there was a significant increase in strength in the the load group. I think that there was pretty equal strength increases even, which which was surprising. Yeah, and so there's the, there's that kind of gets to the next thing I'm thinking about is there's a lot of different ways to create that overload. But then my question is, okay, when you're looking at some of these papers, specifically like with the drop sets, we have all these different ways between drop sets and cluster sets and rust pause and uh, and things like that where we can create more intensity. But 
I would imagine that that's going to be somewhat specific to the population that you're working with. And so like when Mike and I talk about program design, we have to teach trainers and coaches that understand that if you're working with general pop type of clients, that the vast majority of them just need good general physical preparation, just need good mm-hmm. GPP. They, they don't need a lot of these kind of bells and whistles tricks. That's once you've kind of get, uh, you know, a little bit more training age under your belt. Um, where you kind of need to, to kind of go to that toolbox to, to create new adaptations. So when did you see across any of these studies, whether it's drop sets or anything else like that, where it was specific to kind of that training age or, or how long these, how experienced these lifters were? So I did do, so in, in meta-analyses, you do something called, sometimes you do something called sub-analyzing, which is where you, you have this initial question, right? Are drop sets better than traditional sets, right? And then you find a bunch of information, then you start you start noticing some trends, right? Um, we're like, oh, wow, it seems like this study had trained individuals and they seem to be responding a lot better than this study that had untrained individuals or, or this study was on females. And, and, and so then you do things like, oh, let's sub-analyze, see if it had a different effect for females, trained athletes, different musculature. That's all to say that we couldn't do any of that, unfortunately, because it was, a, it was such a small study. So our meta-analysis only looked at about five studies, which I would say is about the, the bare minimum that you should do a meta-analysis on. Um, so we weren't able to do anything like that. So I can't say specific to populations if they worked better for you know males than females, if it worked better for your upper body musculature than your lower body musculature. I can't say if it worked better for uh, geriatric individuals versus like combat athletes or anything like that. But what I can say, is even more specific. So getting out of the population and going into the individual, drop sets hurt, man. Like they they are painful. And like some people, some freaks, some masochists like myself enjoy that, you know, that burning sensation, but most people don't. And I don't remember exactly which study it was, but one of our studies in that meta-analysis did note a higher session RPE. So they found the sessions to be harder in the drop set group than they, on average, than they did in the traditional group, right? So I do, I do think that it, not only is it, yes, population specific. So like, I probably wouldn't have a, a bodybuilder or a power lifter year round doing drop sets by any means, right? Uh, whereas I would probably much more likely have a bodybuilder doing drop sets more, more commonly than a power lifter, right? But Certainly, there are individual differences in, and in, in oftentimes we talk about cost benefit in this industry. We talk about, you know, what's the cost benefit of doing of doing drop sets? Well, the, the benefit is you get more time. The cost is seemingly maybe no cost if the, if the adaptations are the same by our meta analysis standards, right? However, the cost that people don't often talk about is pain and 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 enjoyment. You know, some people the 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 cost benefit ratio for drop sets is so bad because drop sets are are just excruciating they dread them they're miserable and that obviously will inter- interfere with adherence so unfortunately i'm not answering your direct question of do i think drop sets are better for certain populations or did i notice different things across populations but i can say that individually yes there are huge differences in the way that people perceive any any type of training obviously but specific to drop sets here it should also be noted that one of the most painful things in a drop set is to your ego. If someone walks in and sees you struggling yeah. with the t- with the tens in your hand, yeah, and you have to explain, no, no, I've done fifty reps up until now. <laughs> sure, um, sure, you did, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, now there, it, it comes to it. Kind of reminded me 
of uh, some other research I want to get back to in a minute, but I want to talk a little bit about your thesis first and uh, where you're, you're talking about the, the effects of a deload period and taking some time mm -hmm. off and the, the adaptations to strengthen hypertrophy. And um, so I want to hear a little bit about that and I want to, you know, come back and, and see if it might've dispelled some, some myths that are out there. So, so let's just kind of first talk about the foundation of the thesis itself. So uh... For sure. I unfortunately can't speak to whether or not if it's disproven anything because we are literally in the middle of data collection. So I, I can't speak to at all to the, the benefits of a deload as far as this study is concerned yet. But I can't talk about the, the, the idea and the, the origin of the idea. So I believe the first person I ever heard discuss deloading was probably Dr. Mike Isertel, uh, either via YouTube or what have you. And that was probably around 2019, 2018, somewhere around then. And then all of a sudden, man, I don't know about if you guys have noticed this, but deloading has picked up a lot of traction within the like evidence-based circles. There's been a lot more talk about it on, on social media and on YouTube and even within the scientific community. Um, and there's a lot of theoretical rationale as to why these, these deloads might be really beneficial for you know training adaptations. So that was kind of the initial idea. And then I started looking into it and I was like, wow, there's like, no, no one's looking at this. Why has no one done a longitudinal study looking at this directly? And there's been a couple uh, kind of looking at this, this area. So there's a bunch of studies. There's two studies by Oza uh, Ogasawa at all. I'm, I'm sure I'm butchering that name. I'm so sorry if, if you happen, happen to be watching this podcast. Uh, but he looked at, he had untrained individuals trained for like six months and he had one group trained for six months and then he had one group trained for like six weeks took three weeks off six weeks took three weeks off right and that gave us some really cool insights into not having to be afraid of detraining because they saw similar uh, increases in strength and hypertrophy across both groups even though they were doing like in the detraining group they were training like 75 percent as much as the continuously training group right so that gave us some cool insights into oh we don't necessarily have to be afraid of losing all of our muscular adaptations in a short detraining period right but there are a couple issues with those studies even right so for instance they used untrained subjects i don't know a lot of untrained subjects who really need to be deloading every six weeks if i'm being wholeheartedly honest with you and then also they were detraining for three weeks and now, I don't think that taking three weeks off the gym is, is this horrible, immoral thing. And if you do it, you're not a true gym bro. But there is not a lot of people out there taking three weeks off the gym. So it didn't really lend itself well to real world settings, right? So the impetus for this was seeing what research kind of, kind of already had been done on the area and then tweaking it a little bit to make it a little bit more what we call ecologically valid, which is to say more applicable to real world situations. So that was the impetus for the idea. So uh, another legendary exercise scientist, Tudor Bampa, had a, a famous expression, soon ripe, soon rotten. And basically the concept was, is the longer your training age, uh, the less of an effect you will have from downtime than as opposed to someone. So if you had two people that are in the, the same um, theoretical level of fitness and one trained for five months versus one for five years, the one who trained for five years will have much less of a um, detraining effect. Have you found that to, to kind of be the case in what you've seen so far? So man, the lot tangent real quick, let's break down what you just said, which is that one person has been training for five months and one person has been training for five years and they are at the same exact level of fitness characteristic right now. That's unfortunate for the five-year individual, but let's say that they stop training. I do think that that five-year individual 
theoretically, I, I don't have a lot of research to back this, will likely hold on to those adaptations a lot longer than the five-month individual, right? Now, in this particular instance, it doesn't matter because the five-month individual takes five months off, he comes back, and he sees faster adaptations than the five-year individual will regardless. But in a real-world application, yes, I think it's likely that and we we just see this across other things. So like, for instance, like if we're, and I, I'm stealing this from Dr. Ezertel again, but like, let's say you're learning a new language, right? And let's say, Mike, you, you seem to be a, a wonderful English speaker, probably your first language, if I had to guess. Let's say that you went to Spain and you did not speak English to anyone for, let's say a year, right? You didn't speak English for a year. Let's say that Mike in this hypothetical, you're also a fluent Spanish speaker. I have no idea if that's true. And you come back a year later and I mean, how hard do you really think it would be for you to pick back up speaking English? Like it's something that you've been doing for decades, I'm assuming, right? Now take that exact same scenario, Eric, let's say that you're not a native English speaker and you've been practicing English for let's say a year or two and you're pretty conversational, you're pretty good at it, right? But you go back to your home country, Spain in this made up scenario and you, and you're, you go away for a year and you don't speak English and you come back, how hard is it gonna be for you to come back speaking as good English as you did when you were you know, practicing for two years straight. So I, I think it does, you know, it does make it, it passes the face validity test where it's just like, you know what, that makes sense when you just say it out loud. Unfortunately, there are some theoretical reasons as well. Like we do have the myonuclear, myonuclear domain hypothesis theory, which is also losing some credence now, but I won't, I won't go off on that tangent, but there are some reasons to believe. Yes. The, the soon, I'm, I'm really sorry. I didn't know this Tudor Bampa guy until you sent me this. I feel really, I feel bad and ignorant. So if he's watching, I am sorry, but I do believe there is credence to the soon ripe, soon rotten uh, notion for sure. Now, so, what you, uh, I'm sorry, oh, what ahead. you just mentioned, I've heard uh, Andrew Huberman, Huberman uh, talk about as well mm -hmm. is, and, and talking about, you know, for, for lack of better terms, that's actually muscle memory that if you've had that, you know, training experience, even if it was some part of your life, and now you're far removed from that, you'll have a much better training result coming back than versus someone who's never had that experience uh, from a physiological standpoint. Is that kind of what that's referring to? So th that, that, that lot to unpack there. Sorry. So I was kind of going to go into the levels. First of all, muscle memory is, is, a, is very different from what, what uh, I'm assuming Dr. Huberman was talking about in this particular instance, because muscle memory is more of like a motor learning thing where you have these informational stores in your neurons that kind of, it's like when, uh, Mike, sorry, I keep using you as an example. Eric, I, I know more about Mike, even though I've known him for a shorter period of time. For some reason, <laughs> sorry, but uh, Mike, you're a combat guy. So like, I'm assuming that you get in some, you know, I'm not a combat guy, so you get in some rear chokehold or something. You're probably there are probably some instances in where you do something and you did not think to do that because it was almost instinctual. That I think is much more so muscle memory. And here's a fun little thing you know, for for the listeners: muscle memory is is a bit of a misnomer because there's no memory. Your your muscles don't have brains that store information for for like you know motor patterns or anything like that. All of that information is stored in the neuron telling that muscle what to do. Now, to get to the actual question at hand, which was, is, is that kind of what Dr. Huberman was talking about? Yes. Uh, I think and, that- And that's what I was referring to. He's talking yeah. about as, how it's somewhat, not, not anything to the, even though he's a, a, a neuroscientist, it was not about the neuro, because we know that that's right. kind of not the case. We know about motor programming mm -hmm. and motor learning and that sort of stuff. Taking that off the table, I'm talking about more specifically from the coding within the cell that someone who's got that history within there embedded 
that that's is more easily triggered when that when that training starts to happen again at any point later in life. Yes. So I mean, I definitely I once again face face value. I think yes, it's very likely that that is the case because of things like the myonuclear domain theory, right? But there's also some ancillary theories or, or, or other theories that cursory theories, I'll even call them, that I've come up with. That I, I don't, I've never tested these. I don't think these have ever been tested, but I think there's a lot of reasons why you see people who go away from the gym and come back and see probably faster results than someone starting out for the first time. One of those being obviously the myonuclear domain theory, right? Now we're getting into muscle physiology a little bit outside of my realm. And I'm sure that someone in the comments will tell me how stupid I am for, for personifying cells like this. But basically as we train to get bigger, right? Your muscles are like a construction site and each nuclei inside of your, or each nucleus, sorry, inside of a muscle is like a manager telling what the, those muscles, what to do at different times, right? And then eventually your construction site, your muscle gets so big that these, you know, these contractors outside of the cell come in and say, hey, here's another manager and they donate their nuclei to your muscle, right? And then they, they operate in that domain, right? And the theory holds, right? That once that satellite cell donates once that contractor donates that nuclei to the muscle it, you don't lose it it doesn't go anywhere you don't lose it even if you stop training your muscle might get smaller but that number of nuclei you have stays the same right and so that's one reason why we think that individuals who come back from training because they already have all of those nuclei in there they're much more primed for growth now like i said i kind of alluded to this a second ago there is some evidence suggesting that that theory that myonuclear domain theory might not be what we once thought because I got I'm blanking on the name unfortunately but there was a study recently done where they analyzed detraining in older individuals and they actually saw so they saw an initial uptick in the number of myonuclei right after a certain number of weeks of training and then they had them stop training and then they tested them again and they actually did see a decrease in the number of myonuclei in the muscle so that theory is obviously losing a little bit of its credence now I don't I don't think one study certainly suggests that it's not a thing. We're definitely, we were definitely wrong, but I think that certainly there are other reasons as well, why individuals might see fast, faster rates of growth. And, and this is so silly, but these are like my cursory theories that I was talking about. One, they, there's a, there's an, there's a component of self-efficacy there, right? So literally just coming back to it, knowing that they're capable of something, it's way easier to execute. I'm sure you guys have gone through weight loss diets before. The second time is easier. The third time is easier. The fourth time is easier. So doing things like show, knowing that you're capable of something makes it a lot easier to accomplish, right? And then two, these individuals coming back to the gym probably have a much more vast knowledge of how to train correctly. They probably have a much more well-developed mind-muscle connection. They also have found over the years things that already worked for them even after, you know, back then that probably still work for them to the, when they come back to the gym. Right. So I think that I, once again, it gun to my head. Yes. I think that it's true that there probably is faster adaptation seen in individuals coming back from training rather than staying away from training. But unfortunately just off the top of my head, I can't point to science that definitely supports that claim. Well, so I just wanted to add one thing. So we're talking about, you know, the sports scientist Tutabampa. And now a lot of the research that was done in, you know, sports science and Soviet Union was was not based off of hypertrophy. It was actually more of like, um, you know, we're talking about sort of speed, power, um, you know, glycolytic training, glycolytic power, glycolytic capacity. Mm -hmm. And they did come up with this sort of idea of what they call training residuals, residuals of training modalities. And, uh, but 
all that research was done on elite athletes, right? Because obviously, you know, when you're working with those uh, elite athletes, uh, you can get more granular with, uh, with your mm -hmm. information because you already have a base level of training. And um, there's just a little bit more, uh, a little bit less variability because you, you kind of know what you're working with because you have individuals that are already trained. So I think, you know, like you were talking about earlier, like when you say it out loud, it needs to make sense. It's like, well, yeah, if someone has done something before for a certain amount of period of time and they've been exposed to that, if they do it again, it's probably going to come back a little bit quicker. Right. And, and mm -hmm. I think, I think that's just a big part of it is, is understanding sort of the training age, but also a lot of the research were on high, you know, a lot of the old research on sports science was done on high, high level athletes. So um, it, it's, you know, people aren't really, like you said, people aren't really doing a ton of research on deconditioned individuals. Yes. It's starting to starting to happen. But if you look at all the sports science stuff from back in the day, it's all on elite people because that's, that was their control group. They could put them in a cabin and they could tell them what to eat, sleep, and they could they could basically um, oversee and tell them what to do on a daily basis. Yeah, having a totalitarian, gov totalitarian government makes exercise science <laughs> research really easy. Yeah, I kind of <laughs> uh, love, love the country I live in. Don't get me wrong, but sometimes I wish I could just, you know, I wish I could just have a little building where I keep thousands of people and I can just run studies on them to see how I can get them as jacked as possible. That's a joke. It's a joke for anyone who doesn't know that that's a joke. Okay. All right. So I got I got two questions on the deload thing. One, I'm gonna I'm gonna go on two opposite ends of the spectrum. So before I geek out on on some of the stuff that you you triggered some thoughts with before, I'm gonna go like bro science guy at the deli conversation who says, well, you know, if you work out and you stop working out, all your all your muscle turns into fat. Like, explain why that's ridiculous. So yeah, I mean. If I heard, so I've, I've had a lot of conversations with Dr. Schoenfeld and Dr. Isertel about how to broach conversations like that, where someone says something that is, that demonstrates a fundamental misunderstanding of what we're talking about, right? So like, for instance, someone asking what's better, rice or pasta, right? I would say. Pasta. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I'm actually, I'm a rice fan <laughs> myself, but to each their own. I don't, I don't want to offend any Italians or anything, but you, know, you uh, get you get an Italian on the, you get Degatti over here. He uh, he's actually got surprised. He's probably got some pasta in his pockets right now. He's, he's going to have a little snack once we're off. Uh, yeah, I love pasta too. Don't get me wrong. I love, I love a nice carbonara. Don't get me wrong. But uh, I've already dug anyway. that hole. It's too late. Max. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so the way to broach that conversation is difficult, right? Because you never want to come at it in a, like a didactic way where where you're you're kind of like uh, I'm in this ivory tower of research and and you clearly know nothing, right? So in that instance, I would say I would probably take him, you know, I try to meet him somewhere. I could try to meet him at, we got to find common ground eventually. Right. So I would probably say something like, oh, you're clearly into lifting. Like what bodybuilders, what, what powerlifters, what, what, whatever are you interested in? And I'd probably be like, oh, you know, the, the big guys, I'm into like, I mean, all the big lifters like Ronnie Coleman, Jacob, I don't know. I'm not really into bodybuilding, unfortunately. So I can't name, I'm into C-Bum or, or whatever it may be, right? And I'd say, oh, well, you know, C-Bum, Dan Green, all those all those wonderful, very high-level athletes, they they take time away from the gym. Like, it, wh what do you think about that? Like, why, why do you think they would be doing it? And, and then, the, you know, you kind of say, oh, I didn't, I didn't know they were doing that or, or something like that. And you kind of meet them where they are. 
And then as far as the muscle turning into a fat thing, I, I think I would maybe make a dig. I wouldn't be able to help myself and say like, I don't know why people aren't afraid that their brain cells are just constantly turning into to liver cells in their head. But for some reason, we're terrified that our muscle cells are going to randomly convert into fat cells, even though they are completely different things. Uh, so I would probably say something like that as well. But I, truthfully, I would try <laughs> to meet him halfway and say like, Look, I, I totally understand, man. Like, I love the gym too. I certainly hate taking time away from it, and and I I know that I feel kind of shitty when I go back to the gym after taking time off. But I think that there are a lot of high level athletes doing it. I think we have a good bit of research suggesting that it's maybe not a bad thing. Um, and I would probably try and try and move him in that direction, suggesting that time away from the gym is not inherently negative. Okay, so and now almost let's... probably positive as well. Sorry, but yeah, let's let's talk. Let's nerd out now. On the now other let's side. go on the deload side because one of the ways I've seen it popularized, kind of in my world and working with athletes, is um, through Jim Wendler's five three one system. And so, uh, if you read his book, there are program deload weeks within that system. And unfortunately, that system has been kind of copied and bastardized and stolen. And uh, kind of like the telephone game, it gets lost a little bit. Where mm -hmm. he puts in that deload week with kind of an asterisk to say deload but it kind of depends right that if you're still seeing numbers go up if you're still seeing gains you can kind of blow right past that and then once you get through the next cycle you can add that in if necessary so how case dependent is it and how dependent is it on what the goal is as to whether you decide to deload that's my first part of the question second part of the question is kind of clarify deloading as you're talking about backing off volume, you're talking about backing off intensity, you're talking about like Netflix and chill. Okay, a lot of good stuff there. So let's actually start with the second part, which is what is a deload? Because I think getting an operational definition here is important before we start talking about who needs it, right? So what is a deload? Sadly, I can't give you an answer. So right now I'm actually currently working with uh, some researchers outside of England out at Sheffield University and uh, Dr. Pack, I don't know. And uh, so Lee Bell, Dr. Pack, shout out to you guys. Um, we're actually currently working on a study to create a definition for deloads, because as we've talked about, they're pretty popular. I mean, like Jim Wendler has been talking about them for clearly a long time. So they, they're obviously have been circulating people. Athletes have been tapering for, for decades and, and a millennia probably, but uh, as far as what there actually are, or is that a reduction in volume? Is it a reduction in intensity? Do you do a lot more cardio on your deload? Whatever it may be, are you just sitting on the couch and eating popcorn the entire time, right? We don't have a legitimate definition for that in the scientific literature as of right now, but we're working towards it. Now, that being said, let me give you what I think a deload is. Sorry, once again, long-winded. I think a deload is a short period, about one week, where you see large reductions in volume and intensity, right? So not only are we bringing the number of sets that we're doing down, we're also bringing the proximity to failure that we're doing down as well. So I think those are kind of the two big components and, and not everyone agrees. Like my good friend, Daniel Plotkin, I just talked about, I'm pretty sure he brings volume down very drastically, but actually keeps training relatively hard. Uh, and I think that works really, really well for him. I, on the other hand, being the the lazy you know sloth that I am, my deloads are me doing nothing, me getting to focus on research a little bit harder, me getting to focus on classwork a little bit harder for one every five, six weeks, right? Uh, so there's certainly not a universal way by which people actually do deloads, but the methodology or the uh, idea behind them is all about the same, which is 
a period of time in which you are potentiating future adaptations in your subsequent mesocycle, your subsequent cycle of training, right? So you train really hard. Eventually you accrue so much fatigue that you need to take some time off because you literally can't train anymore. And then you take that time off. You let that fatigue dissipate. And fortunately we know that those muscular adaptations aren't going to go anywhere either because they hold on for a lot longer than we think. And then you get back to it with all this fatigue gone. And now you can start from square one. Um, now that kind of leads me into who needs them, right? I kind of alluded to this earlier saying that I don't know a lot of completely untrained individuals who need to be deloading every five to six weeks, right? Uh, solely because I probably wouldn't be pushing, pushing untrained individuals uh, anywhere hard enough to where they would accrue a significant amount of fatigue, right? Now, that becomes a much more nuanced conversation when you start talking about like more intermediates and advanced because some people deload every three weeks. Some people deload once every three, four months. Uh, so it, it really depends. But I think that performance decrements like you brought up earlier are certainly a, a good metric by which we know we need a deload. Now, unfortunately, I don't know if now this is just we're officially getting into completely you know my ideas and my opinions i don't know if performance detriments are the best metric to go by because if you're seeing perform performance and debt performance detriments week to week you're clearly in need of a deload and you probably needed one the week before you started seeing performance detriments right so one of my favorite metrics that I use, once again, this is just me anecdotal. I'm not speaking as a scientist here. I'm speaking as just someone who likes to lift is my desire to train. If, if I, I love training more than the next guy, I really do. And I'm sure you guys do as well, unless the next guy is either one of you, obviously, then I love it as much as the next guy. But if I find myself like not wanting to go to the gym, it's very likely that I'm in need of a deload. Now that's for me. Now, many individuals never want to go to the gym and they just have to kind of like force themselves to. So those that's not a good metric for those individuals, obviously. And maybe performance detriments would be a much better proxy for them. I think that also just general feelings in the gym. So are you going to the gym and are you feeling for four weeks, you've been feeling these bent rows hit your rhomboids and lats like crazy. You've been getting this great mind muscle connection. And, and week five and six, you start noticing, you know, I'm still, I'm still improving. I'm still getting better, but you know, I'm starting to feel this more in my more in my lumbar spine than in my lats, right? Or more in my rotator cuff than in my lats. I think that might also be a, a somewhat decent metric to use for individuals that are that are, you know, less uh, inclined to to love training, for instance. So I know that I just I, I just you know vomited all over you guys with words, but uh, that's my general opinion of what the definition is and and who needs it, I suppose. Yeah, I want to just sneak in one more thing that I put a side note on earlier. And we were kind of talking about intent and intensity. I always remember I was in a uh, at a conference and, and speaking to legendary researchers, William Kramer was there speaking. And he was talking about some research we were trying to do on, I think it was endocrine effects of doing something like a German volume training. Like I think it was 10 sets of 10 with 60 second rest periods. And he said they couldn't get clean data because like, because they couldn't get anybody to finish the protocol. Like he said, they literally had like a garbage pail that people were puking in, they couldn't finish it. So how much of your, is it hard to really get clean data when intent is something that's hard to really gauge in terms of how much effort someone's actually putting into something? 
So, I, I mean, absolutely. Like, so IRB, so we call it in America, I think we call it IRB, which is like your internal review board. And and then in Europe, they call it the ethics board. They're basically your ethics board. You have to say, hey, I want to do this research idea. Because a bunch of scientists in the 70s and 50s fucked it up for us. And they were doing, they were given a bunch of like schizophrenics acid and stuff. So, so they, we developed these things to keep scientists from, from being the evil scientists that they are. So, Fortunately, internal review boards and, and ethics boards don't typically aren't usually lifters. So they don't know that like doing German volume training is this like insane, miserable, cruel and unusual punishment. Right. But uh, so so fortunately, we can get those proven. Fortunately, we have a decent bit of overtraining literature. And you're absolutely right. Like it is hard to get. I mean, you have to get some psychopaths to come to your gym to do German volume training three times a week, you know, people who just truly are masochistic and love the grit of training. So, yeah, I do think that it is really hard to get very clean data uh, pertaining to, to anything when it comes to like overtraining literature. So, for instance, uh, right now, I don't know how much I'm allowed to talk about this, but right now in my deload study, we are we, we got garbage bins around constantly because we're putting these because we wanted to ensure that these people were going to need a deload so we're we're putting them through the ringer and yeah sometimes they're restaurant you know we try our very best to stick to the exact protocol i mean we try to be as robotic as possible but you know, if i've got a kid who's like sitting hands and knees like like throwing up after his fourth set i can't say all right man get, come on fifth set <laughs> six, time to go let's more. go it's yeah it's <laughs> like i can't i there's only so much you can do right so yeah it once you start getting to, to to where it becomes oppressive, I'll call it. Yeah, it's it's hard to get to get like very clean robotic data as if we were just carrying out like a, a, a zeros and ones survey or something like that. So yeah, absolutely, uh, and that kind of goes with with anything in research. You know, always be skeptical. Look at it with a grain of salt. Make sure you really read over the methods and see how it went. So yeah, definitely. Well, this is this has been some awesome stuff, and and so before uh, before we wrap up, Mike, I'll, I'll let you kind of chime in with any last thoughts or questions you may have before we shut it down here. Uh, no, I mean, thank you so much for your insight and uh, sharing your experience. Uh, you know, as someone who's I've been more on the sort of sports performance side, and and uh, obviously I've done a little bit of hypertrophy work, but you know, the guys that you're talking about, you know, Dr. Mike Israel tell uh, Dr. Schoenfeld, like, these are the, these are the guys, that's the, those are the people mm -hmm. that I send everybody to when it comes to hypertrophy. And, uh, um, you know, a lot of the stuff that you're saying definitely resonates with, with sort of the beliefs that I've had as well. So thank you so much for, you know, sharing your, your expertise with us and I'll let Eric close us out. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, we're, we're looking forward to see what happens when, when you get all this information together in, in your thesis and maybe we'll circle back and, and get you back on. You can explain what you find, but I uh, want to thank you for, for your time and your expertise and in, in, in sharing all that information with us. And uh, uh, before we wrap up, tell us kind of what you got going on for 2023 and other than the thesis, any other new exciting projects or, or papers you're working on? Yeah. So, uh, well, first of all, actually, absolutely. Thank you guys. This was obviously a huge pleasure. I, I, anytime I get to talk about lifting, I'm happy to do so. So I'll, I'll happily come on after we get, we get our uh, data nice and secured and published and stuff. So, uh, if we get our data published and stuff, uh, but as far as what I've got coming up, you know, my, my sole focus right now is obviously my master's thesis and getting that done, uh, which is about, about deloads obviously, but I'm also currently on, like I said, working with those guys out in Sheffield on, on creating an actual taxonomy for deloads. And that's really exciting. 
as far as what I've got coming up in the next year, man, for the first time in my life, I have no clue. So I got to graduate from this master's program. And then the goal was obviously a PhD. Uh, but as far as where that's going to be and what I'm going to be studying, I'm not sure. I just surely hope that it has to do with getting as jacked as possible. But again, thank you guys so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Uh, absolutely. And that is a very worthy goal that more people should aspire to. And so, so, so thank you again, Max. And, and thank you everyone out there for listening. And this has been the Principles of Performance podcast. Thank you for listening to the Principles of Performance podcast. If you've enjoyed our content, please like and share on your social media outlets, as well as subscribe and give us a review on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your preferred platform is to listen to. For more information on the Principles of Program Design courses and workshops, visit us at www.principlesofprogramdesign.com and follow us on all of the social media channels where we post new content every day. To save 10% on any PPD courses, enter the discount code PRINCIPLESPODCAST10 at checkout. If you have any questions we can answer or suggestions for the show, you can email us at info at principlesofprogramdesign.com or message us on social media. Thank you again for your support.